want to begin uh, this morning with you by asking you a question. Get your mental juices flowing here. So here's my question for you. That is, what is the relationship? What is the relationship of a Christian to the law of Moses? What is the relationship of a Christian to the law of Moses? You've been reading through the scriptures with us this year. We spent a fair amount of time, of course, reading through the Pentateuch and all of those detailed laws that were there. What is our relationship to all of that? Is it binding on us today, the law of Moses? Is it partially binding? A little bit. Is it not binding at all? Have you no idea? Well, let me ask you another question. Are you wearing clothes this morning that are made of two different kinds of yarn in the same fabric? Do you have blended fabric in your clothing this morning? Because if you do, then at least you have concluded that part of the law of Moses doesn't apply to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 specifically says that you shall not make cloth of two different kinds of yarn, wool and cotton. So if you've got a blended shirt on this morning, then you've at least concluded that part of the law of Moses doesn't apply to you any longer today. How does the law of Moses figure into our sanctification as Christians? That's the big, big question that is before the house this morning. We finished with Romans chapter 6 last week, and we are now moving into Romans chapter 7. Open your Bibles there, please. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1130. Romans 7. The big question in Romans 7 is, what about the law? How does the law fit in to all of this? Let me read Romans 7 for you. This may be the only time as we go through this section that I'm going to read the whole chapter. But let me go ahead and do that as we begin to talk about this topic. And this is no small topic, by the way. This is a topic that has occupied uh, theologians and Bible exegetes for a long, long time. It's an untold number of trees that have given their lives in the quest of the answer for this big question, and that is, what is our relation to the law of Moses? But anyway, let's read what Paul has to say, because that's the most important, and everything else is merely a commentary on it. Paul says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, 
that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. In Romans six, fourteen, let your eyes glance over there. Paul wrote that the Christian is not under law, but under grace. You remember that? Romans 6.14. And he made that statement there in order to encourage us to obey the imperatives of verses 12 and 13 that 
immediately had preceded it. And we spent a lot of time examining those imperatives and what that really meant to us. But Paul grounded those imperatives in this reality that you're not under law, but you are under grace. But that's a pretty shocking statement to make. That's a very forceful kind of statement. And for the Jewish ear, particularly in the first century, to to hear that or to read that kind of statement that you are not under law, but under grace would have absolutely scandalized them. Absolutely. And so Paul was immediately in this text forced to deal with a with a misunderstanding that would have arisen in everybody's mind who would have heard his statement here. That somehow he was encouraging people to sin by saying the, that the, you're not under the law anymore. And beginning in verse 15, that's exactly what he did, right? He said, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. And beginning there in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, through verse 23, Paul goes on to demonstrate that no, just because we're not under the law, we are not now free to to sin because we have been moved from one form of enslavement to another, right? Verses 15 through 23. We have gone from being enslaved to sin and we have now been enslaved to righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul continued as he he dealt with this topic to say that no, being under the law is not licensed to sin. It is not open hunting season to do whatever you would want to do. But indeed, being under grace means that you have traded slavery, traded masters from sin to grace to righteousness. A righteousness that leads to eternal life, verse 23, as opposed to a slavery that leads to eternal death. So Paul laid to rest this potential misunderstanding in the remaining part there of chapter 6. But now in chapter 7, he is returning to his statement. Chapter 7, he is now going back to this amazing statement made in verse 14 of chapter 6. And he is going to give it a much fuller treatment. He is going to tease out of it the theological reality and implications of what it means to be not under law, but under grace. And so that's what we've got before us in the next few weeks as we begin to unpack this section together. Now, remember, from a big context point of view, chapters six, seven and eight of the book of Romans is dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification. And so his discussion of the law here and the role of the law with the with regard to the Christian occurs within the realm of the doctrine of sanctification. That's what he's going to be talking about. How does the law fit into the reality of us becoming like Jesus Christ, the doctrine of sanctification? What role does the law play in us becoming like Christ? So it's in that big context that we have to approach what he's talking about here. In fact, if I were to put some big category headings over chapter six, seven and eight, it would probably go something like this. Chapter six, Paul says that union with Christ has freed us from sin. 
That's the big idea of chapter 6. Union with Christ has freed us from sin. The big idea of chapter 7, here's what chapter 7 is all about. You ready? Just in one little nutshell. Chapter 7, the big idea is that the law cannot sanctify you. That's what chapter 7 is all about. The law cannot sanctify you. And that necessarily leads to chapter 8. And the big idea of chapter 8 is that we are being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. Several people over the last few weeks have come up to me and as they said, David, as we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification here in Romans, you're, you're not mentioning the role of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't hear you talking about him and his role in this process. And, and my answer to them is, is yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I really have not talked about the role of the Holy Spirit with regard to our sanctification. And the reason I haven't done that yet is because Paul hasn't done it yet. And so we're, you know, we're working through Paul's development. And if we jump ahead and short circuit the process that Paul has laid out for us here, we will miss a lot. We will really miss. In fact, what we will miss is the doctrine of sanctification. And so we've got to follow the progression of logic as the Apostle Paul lays it out. So there it is for you. Chapter six, union with Christ, freed from sin. Chapter seven, the law cannot sanctify you. Chapter 8, we are being led by the Spirit. We are being led by the Spirit. Paul's going to argue here, and we're going to look at the first six verses this morning. The first six verses of chapter 7. And Paul's going to argue here that just as death with Christ has freed us from slavery to sin, so also our union with Christ has released us from the law. That's going to be his argument in the first six verses here. Just as death with Christ, that is in union with Christ, has freed us from our slavery to sin, chapter 6, in the same way our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection has released us from the law. Look at verse 14 again. You are not under law, but under grace. So as we look at these verses this morning, and I've given you a handout, to follow along, as we're looking at these verses, what I want to do with you is examine a basic principle of law. One basic principle of law in order to understand why placing Christians under the Mosaic law actually hinders their sanctification. It actually hinders their sanctification. Okay, so that's where we're going. Verses one through six. Let's begin with the principle. The principle, the principle is simple. The principle is that death ends a person's obligations to obey the law. Verse one. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? A very simple statement. Same phrase Paul begins with here. Or do you not know? You see that same phrase he uses over in verse three, chapter six. Do you not know? He's introducing a teaching here that he assumes his audience is familiar with. He assumes that they can understand this basic principle. And it's really a very, a very simple principle that he's talking about, and that is that death releases you from your obligations under the law. What Paul says here, or do you not know, 
what he is what he is doing is he is he is calling their attention back to something previously in the context. OK, the same way he did over in chapter six, verse three. And so what he's calling them back, as I've said, he's calling them back to his statement in verse 14. Really, you could almost say 15 through 23 of chapter six is almost a parenthesis in the flow of the argument. So he says, or do you not know? He is reflecting back to his earlier statement. You are not under law, but under grace. Now, there are some um, Bible teachers who think here that Paul is is uh, is narrowing his address, narrowing his focus to the Jewish audience within the churches at Rome. That somehow he's he's uh, kind of gone off to the side, maybe a little soliloquy, and he's now talking to the Jewish believers only. But I don't I don't think that's a necessary conclusion at all. I think he's still addressing the church at large. And the reason I, I believe that is, is because the church at Rome would would certainly have been comprised of Jew and Gentile. But its book of instruction would have been the Old Testament. It would have been the Old Testament. So they would have all been familiar with the law of Moses. It would be very much a part of their scripture and what they had available to them. So I don't think it's necessary to conclude that Paul is exclusively dressing Jewish believers. But I do believe I am persuaded that when he's talking about law in verse 14, chapter six and here in chapter seven, that he is referring to the Mosaic law. He's not referring to some general law, some Roman law, but he's talking about the Mosaic law. Okay, the law of God. And I think what he's doing here is he is specifically calling his readers attention to a principle that is very, very familiar to anybody who takes a moment to think about the concept of law. And it's a very simple principle. As I said, as long as you're alive, you're obligated to obey the law. When you die, you are no longer obligated to obey the law. That makes sense, doesn't it? You have to obey the traffic laws as long as you are alive and driving on the roads. When you are dead, you no longer have to obey the traffic laws. And if you don't obey the traffic laws while you're alive, you may end up dead on the side of the road, in which case the law will no longer have jurisdiction over you. Okay? So when you're alive, you have to obey the law. When you're dead, you're released from the law. Very simple. Very, very simple. Or do you not know such things? Of course you do. The law regulates the activities of the living, not of the dead. Therefore, death renders the law inoperative. Death renders the law inoperative. That is the principle. That is the principle with which Paul is really going to unpack this whole chapter. Chapter 7 is going to derive out of this principle that death renders the law inoperative. So that's the principle. Now, like any good preacher, he's going to illustrate it. He's going to illustrate it. And so what we have next is the picture, if you'll allow me the alliteration. We have the principle and now we'll have the picture. Okay, an illustration. That's verses two and three. He's going to illustrate the principle that he has just or just reminded them of. Here's the illustration for if the married woman is bound by law to her husband while she is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. This is an illustration. Some want to see in here an allegory. But I don't believe there are any allegories, personal opinion. I don't believe there are any allegories anywhere in the New Testament. I think this is simply an illustration. 
Simply an illustration. And like any good illustration, it drives one point. It is only driving one point. An illustration can always be pressed too far and can be made to say things that it's not meant to say. This is an illustration of the principle just given, and it is designed like any good illustration to drive home just one point. The point is death severs your obligation to the law. Now the illustration. What is the illustration? It's a marriage illustration from Jewish marriage law. Now, it is not a good idea to assume that into the context of a discussion of the doctrine of sanctification that Paul decides, why don't I insert a little teaching about marriage and divorce? It doesn't make any sense contextually at all to do something like that. The Apostle Paul has not all of a sudden decided, I better teach these people something about marriage and divorce. So this is not about marriage and divorce. This is not an apostolic teaching on marriage and divorce. And if I can even be so bold as to say, this really has little or nothing to do with the topic of marriage and divorce. This is an illustration of a principle, an illustration of a principle, a principle that they know and that, you know, when you're alive, you're obligated to obey the law. When you die, you are no longer obligated to obey the law. So Paul illustrates it here from marriage. For marriage, because it's an illustration, not a teaching with regard to marriage and divorce, there is no exception clause. And I only mention this is because people will turn to this chapter here in Romans seven and they'll say, see, it says right there, there is absolutely no permissible divorce within the New Testament. And to do that is to entirely misunderstand the context in which this teaching occurs. So Paul's not talking about marriage and divorce. He's illustrating his principle. Therefore, he doesn't bother to deal with the exceptions that appear in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, Matthew 5. There's, there's a lot out there with regard to the doctrine of marriage and divorce that Paul doesn't bring in because to do so would cloud his illustration. It would cloud his illustration. And so he stays on target, as it were, and employs this illustration to define what he's really trying to say. So it is the illustration. It's very simple. Marriage law is binding so long as both partners are alive. As long as both the marriage partners are alive, they are bound by their marriage vows. That's kind of common sense, isn't it? You know that. And that illustrates the principle that you also know. That when you're alive, you're under obligation to obey the law. When you're alive, you're under obligation to obey your marriage vows. If a partner dies within a marriage, then you are free to do what? You're free to remarry. You are, you are released from your obligation under the marriage vow. That's the illustration that illustrates the point. It's very simple. Now it gets complicated. Now we need to apply it. We need to apply something that is very simple, very easily understood, in the big upstairs place. Now we've got to bring it in the downstairs and we've got to apply it in the actual nitty gritty aspects of life. And so Paul was going to begin to do that for us here. And so verses four through six, I'm calling it the personal application. The personal application. The principle, when you're alive, you have to be obligated to obey the law. When you're dead, you're released from the obligation. The picture, 
When you're alive, you're bound by your marriage vow. When one of the partners dies, you're freed from the marriage vow and you're free to remarry. You're free to be joined to someone else. Let's apply it. Therefore, you see that he's drawing a conclusion. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. What Paul says is that when we died with Christ, when we died in union with Jesus Christ, we were released from our obligations under the law and we were freed to be joined to another. No, even the, the use of the word joined it kind of picks up off of that marriage illustration. We were freed to be joined to another. That other was Christ. It was Christ. And it was for the purpose of becoming fruitful for God. In union with Christ, when we died with Christ, we were released from our obligations under the law, and we were then joined to Jesus Christ so that we might begin to bear fruit for God. That's what Paul says. Notice he also says here, verse 4, that you were made to die to the law. Made to die. Paul uses a, a verb here, thanatao, and it means to put to death. And he uses that verb rather than Apothnesco, which means to die. He also uses a passive form of the verb. And, and what that indicates basically is that, the, that we don't do the die, we don't cause our own death. Someone causes it to us. In fact, you could even translate this is, is that, therefore, my brethren, you also were put to death to the law. God put us to death. God caused us to die to the law in union with Jesus Christ, so that we might be joined to Jesus Christ. It's God's work. Paul's talking about conversion. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about the spiritual reality of what happened at the moment that you placed saving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, you were put to death by God in union with Christ, and you were therefore raised to life the newness of life with Christ and you were released from underneath the law and you were placed under the slavery of grace and you are now free to serve God. Free to serve God. The context, it pulls this all together here. Verse 14, chapter 6, you are not under the law. That describes the results of of chapter 7, verse 4, you were made to die to the law. You were made to die to the law. Therefore, you are not under the law. Paul ties these two together. But what does it mean? What does it mean to not be under the law? What does it mean to have been made to die to the law? Paul's focus here, again, pull back. Paul's focus, 6, 7, and 8, is, is not on the condemnation that comes to us by the law or comes to people by the law. Galatians 3.13 calls it the curse of the law. Paul's discussion here is on the failure of the law to deal with the problem of sin. 
And I read to you the whole chapter. That's his lament through this chapter. He gets to the end of chapter 7, verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. With my mind, I'm serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. He's saying that I am, I am a wretch in this whole matter because whatever I try to do, the law doesn't get there. All I end up doing is condemn. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Paul's discussion here with regard to the law has everything to do with the inability of the law to bring about the righteousness that the Christian desires. This is pretty shocking stuff. This is pretty shocking stuff to the first century listener. I mean, put yourself in the position to hear this. This is the Mosaic Law. This has been in existence for 1,500 years. This defines the people of God. This was considered by the Jew to be their greatest barrier against sin. And what was, in their mind, their greatest barrier against sin actually ends up getting used by sin to make the sin problem worse. As Paul says in the chapter there, right? I, I, uh, I didn't even, uh, wouldn't even have come to know about sin except for the law. And when the law was given, it just made it all that much more worse. So that which was in the mind of the Jew to be the greatest protection, the greatest barrier against moral evil for the people of God, Paul says it doesn't accomplish that. In fact, it does just the opposite. It inflames your passion for sin. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. Of course, a natural question to come to someone's mind. Well, then is the law sin? And Paul answers, what? May it never be. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We'll unpack that later. So I submit to you what Paul is really talking about here when he says that we are not under the law. Is he is using the law as a way to speak of the power of the old age. There is very much that runs through these two chapters. The 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 tension between the old and the new. The old age, the age in which you are in slavery to sin in which your passions rule over you, in which you are under the judgment and condemnation of God, is compared to the new age in which you are now in Jesus Christ, delivered from the tyranny of sin, and in which you now, as he'll say in 8, have the indwelling power of the Spirit of God to enable you to live a life that will bring you ultimately into the glory the presence of God Almighty Himself. And so the law here is just one more part of that old age. And Paul's saying that old age is gone. You're in a new age. And the new age in which you are in, the law no longer rules over you. No longer rules over you. You have been released from your bondage to the power of the old age. And instead, you have been joined to Jesus Christ and the power of the new age. See that down at the end of verse 6, by the way, right? He says, so then we serve in the newness of the what? 
spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's a definite contrast going on here. Paul's saying that the death in union with Jesus Christ had freed you from the slavery of sin and transferred you underneath to the slavery of grace. The death with Jesus Christ also delivered you from under the yoke of the law and delivered you into this new realm in which you, he'll say later, walk in the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. We die to the law in order to be joined to Christ. You can't be joined to Christ and still joined to the law. Because if you do that, you are in violation of the basic principle. As long as you are alive, you are obligated to obey what? The law. The only way you escape from under the law is to die. And you die with Christ and are raised to a newness of life in which you now are joined to Him. Otherwise, you're an adulterer. A spiritual adulterer. You know, it's really fascinating. Verse 5, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Prior to the coming of Christ, the law did not hold down sin. In fact, it actually inflamed it, Paul says. It actually inflamed the passion for sin. And these sinful passions could only have one result. Verse 23, chapter 6. Death eternally. Eternal death. These inflamed passions aroused by the law can only eventuate in one thing, that is, in death. Eternally. But by dying to that power which was once in control of us, we have now been freed to serve God in a new way. The newness of the Spirit. This is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff. This is heavy-duty theology again. Kind of like the beginning of chapter 6. But it's going to begin to play itself out in really practical ways. So let me see if I can do that for you. The time that remains, let me see if I can play this out for you really practically in one illustration. Fair enough? If this illustration works then you will walk out of here this morning with at least some concrete understanding of what it means to no longer be under the law. On your handout, I reproduced what I'm going to go over here with you because I'm going to have to go over it fast. I knew I would. And so I reproduced it for you so that you can kind of follow along and then go back on your own and look at some of this. Now let me just say, uh, kind of as a preamble here, that... As a Christian, no longer under the law of Moses, that our standards cannot and should not be less than what they were for the Old Testament believer. Because we have the indwelling Spirit of God within us, the law written on our hearts, to empower us to live for the glory of God. So just right out of the chute, let me just say this, that because you are indwelled by the Spirit of God and enabled by the Spirit of God, we can and should live at a higher level than those who resided under the law. 
Okay, so I say that to you both to challenge you and to to assure anyone out there who thinks that I'm about ready to you know jump off the deep end here and say that you know antinomianism. Let's just do whatever we want. We are at a high standard. We are at a high standard. I would suggest to you a standard higher than the Old Testament believer. Now, what I want to do is look with you at uh, one of the perhaps most common ways that Christians are kept under the law of Moses and show you why there's a better way serving in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans seven, verse six. So what I want to look at with you is tithing, tithing, tithing was a requirement of the Mosaic law. It is a requirement of the Mosaic law under the law. 10% of one's income I included that there was an agricultural economy. So it's primarily an agricultural income. But regardless, 10% of one's income had to be given to the Levitical priests in exchange for them not having an allotment of land. And when they went into the promised land under Joshua, you'll remember that if you've been reading the Old Testament. So they were to be provided for by the people who were to give a 10% tithe of their income to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests were to give a tithe of a tithe in order to support the Aaronic priesthood and the temple functions. That was the economy of Israel. That's how it worked. You can read all this in Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 26, and other places. Now in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 The exiles have returned from their Babylonian exile. They are now back in the land and God severely rebukes the returning captives in Malachi 3.10. And he rebukes them because they have not been faithful in their tithing. And he actually says that they are robbing him. They are robbing him because they have held back some of their tithe. Now, fast forward. Here we are. 21st century, evangelical Christians in America. Evangelical Christian giving runs approximately 3%. 3% of income. And that is a hindrance to world evangelism and church planting. There's no question about it. There is not enough money available to do what needs to be done to fulfill the Great Commission. God's people are not providing enough money. And some believe that these shabby levels of giving are because churches do not teach tithing. Do not teach tithing. And that if the church taught tithing, they theorized, then there would be a lot more money. Another 7% of the income of evangelicalism would be available for the work of the Great Commission. And that sounds pretty compelling, doesn't it? And they may be right. They may indeed be right. If all the churches taught tithing, then probably there would be a greater level of income available for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I'm not going to dispute that. But putting people back under the Mosaic law, even to accomplish a noble purpose like world evangelism, runs contrary to what Paul says in Romans 7. 
Question. If you are not tithing this morning, are you robbing God? Is Malachi 3.10 written for you? Have you robbed God this morning? If the law is for you, what is the penalty for your violation of it? Daniel Webster, I think, had uh, something profound to say about this. He said, law without penalty is just good advice. Law without penalty is just good advice. So is that what it's all down to now? For the returning exiles of Israel, is it you have robbed me, Malachi 3.10? And for the believers here in America and the church in the 21st century, is it you really ought to give 10%? That's my good advice to you. Is that what's happened? Is it the law with no teeth? I show you a better way. I show you a better way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. What I want to do in the time remaining, and man, somebody turns that clock ahead every morning. <laughs> what I want to do is I want to show you grace giving. I want to show you grace giving, not no giving. Okay? The release from the law does not mean no giving, it means grace giving. Grace giving. Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians have a lot to say about giving. A lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we find a number of principles here with regard to grace giving, and then there are a few more over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So we're going to have to go quickly through this. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just read the first nine verses, and then we'll come back and lift those principles out, and they are in your handout for you. Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay, what's Paul saying here? What he's saying to us first with regard to grace giving is it begins with the grace of God in our own lives and then overflows to others. That's what he says here. It begins with the grace of God in our own life, overflowing to others. We come to understand what God has really done in us, and then that spirit overflows to other people. Secondly, it is not nullified by our economic circumstances, even our poverty. The churches in Macedonia were dirt poor. But our economic circumstances do not affect our grace giving. Even poverty doesn't affect it which means that there is nobody too poor to give. 
Beyond that, it is not by commandment. Paul says that, right? I do not give you a commandment. If there was any place in the New Testament for Paul to enforce any kind of percentage giving, here's the place. And he doesn't do it. He says, I'm not giving you a commandment here. There is no specific commandment with regard to how much to give. It begins with the grace of God in your life. It overflows to others. It's not nullified by your economic circumstances, even including your poverty. It is not given by commandment. It is inspired by the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, right? That you through his poverty might become rich. Our example is Jesus Christ. How much did he give? There's your example. Okay, there's your example. Beyond that, and we don't have time to read it, but down through verses 10 through 15, grace giving demonstrates our interconnectedness in the body of Christ. Grace giving demonstrates that we are interconnected here in a body. You go over to chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not with grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there is a reward by God for grace giving. God rewards grace giving. And grace giving is to be done cheerfully. Do you see that? God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, more literally. How do you become a hilarious giver? That'd be cool if we were passing the offering plates and people just started belly laughing when it went by, right? Because of the joy that is overflowing from their heart for what God has done to them. Then they begin to, to laugh, not laughing at the paltry amount, but laughing at the opportunity, you know, enjoy the opportunity to participate. So it's done cheerfully. Over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, just a few more. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So there's grace giving is to be systematic. It is to be systematic. It is the first day of the week, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 16, 2. First day of the week. I will just give you a personal illustration here. You do with this whatever you want. But some time ago, uh, uh, Carol and I decided to begin giving every week. To begin giving every week so that we would have the joy of participating every week and not just on the weeks when I got paid. We were thinking to ourselves, why limit the joy to twice a month? Why not have joy every week? So we now give every week. I just throw it out there, you do with it whatever you want. Okay? But you're supposed to give, according to what Paul says, systematically. We give personally, let each one of you, let each one of you, there's personal giving here. We give deliberately, put aside and save, verse 2, just as you have purposed in your heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So there's a deliberate nature to our grace giving. And we give proportionally, verse 2, as he may prosper. So together, what do we have here? What we have are the principles of grace giving. The principles of grace giving. Not under the law, which says 10%. Instead, what we have are all of these principles 
of grace giving that all begin with an overflowing heart of gratitude for the grace of God and what he's done in our lives. Now, I suspect that if the church of Christ got a hold of the principles of grace giving and began to give in that way, in accordance with the riches of the glory of the grace of God poured out to us through Jesus Christ, there would be no problem at all with money to implement the Great Commission or to plant for churches stemming out of this fellowship. But for many of us, this word hurts. For many of us, our personal finances, if we're honest, are in such a shambles. Such a shambles because of our own selfish pursuits that we can't even give at the level of an Old Testament believer. We can't even rise to that level. Now that's a sobering thought. Let's pray. Our Father, the Scripture says we love because you first loved us. And so I think, Lord, we would be on good ground to say we give because you first gave to us. That you held back nothing. You gave the Lord Jesus Christ to die on that cross. That our redemption might be made sure. That our sin would be atoned for past, present and future. Even the sin of greed. And our Father, not only is our sin forgiven, but the power of sin over us has been broken. We now have within us, through your indwelling Holy Spirit, the desire and the power to live in obedience to you. And as Paul has begun to teach us here, Lord, a further reality of that new life in Christ is that we have been delivered from underneath the yoke of the law of Moses and have been transferred now into the life of the Spirit. Living under grace, not law. Our hearts are drawn to you, our Father. We pray that you would continue to work in our midst as you have been working to root out our sin, to reveal it to us that we might repent of it and turn from it. Dear Father, we want to put now our pocketbooks on the line as well. For Jesus said that where our heart is, there is our money also. Our Father, search us. Not that we would come back under slavery and bondage to a mosaic regulation but that we would be liberated from the letter of the law to live by the Spirit and enjoy the abundant blessing of grace-giving. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.